Well, peace be with you. Peace be with you at home as well. Thank you for coming in and for tuning in uh, this morning. Well, um, before we get started, happy Mother's Day. Come on. Men, that's your cue. Men need cued a lot. Uh, happy Mother's Day. Let me just say, as we get started here, let me just say, moms, we're grateful for you. Okay? Look at me. All you moms, look at me. Uh, at home or in your car or wherever you're listening. You know, moms, thank you. We are grateful for you. Really, all women. Okay? And I mean that. All women. All of you women listening, watching, sitting here, we are grateful for you. I'm grateful for you. We, are, we should be all grateful for you because you guys carry a lot. You carry a lot. And um, not just responsibilities of jobs and kids and homes and things I don't even know about. Uh, but um, you carry a lot. Um, not just the responsibilities, but you also carry inner turmoil. I know this. I'm married to a mom. Uh, you know, I live with a mom, not my mom, but I'm, you know, my wife. And so uh, and I speak with her. So like, for instance, working moms, working moms, working moms, maybe you feel guilty because you, you, you feel like you're not a, as at home as much as you think you should be. Or you working moms, maybe you feel guilty because you because you feel like actually I like my job and I don't really want to be home. And uh, that maybe stirs up a sense of guilt in you. You wouldn't dare talk about that or tell anyone that, or I don't know. Uh, maybe um, maybe you, you're a stay-at-home mom and you, and you feel guilty because you don't make an income outside the home or something like that. Or you, you're a stay-at-home mom and you feel guilty maybe because you feel like, honestly, there are many, many days of being at home with the kids and you hate it. And you wouldn't dare tell anyone that. Uh... There's all sorts of mom guilt I'm learning about. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe your mom and your days of raising kids are over and you, stir, you, have, you have guilt things stirring in you about maybe whether or not you did a good enough job or something like that. Or maybe you're, no, you're not even a mom yet. Or you feel like you can't be a mom. And maybe you're struggling with some sense of guilt that you don't even want kids couldn't dare say that in a church or Christian society. Or uh, maybe you really want kids and you, you can't have kids and or you don't know if you'll be able to have kids and so you, you're, you're paralyzed by this sense of shame or, or this sense of fear and dread about what that means and then, and then you, you, know, you have guilt about those feelings. Am I way off on this, women? I mean... Uh, <laughs> I'm going to take a stab in the dark here, um, but I think that this is stirring underneath, and I think there's a whole list of other things I'm not mentioning, uh, because just quite frankly, I'm a man, and I, you know, it's hard to know everything that's going on. I just know you all carry a lot. I know women carry a lot, and men, you carry a lot too, but it's not your day, so let's <laughs> save that for another day. Uh, so when I talk to my wife about this this week, because I always do. I always run it by her, and some of the things like, am I off on this? You know, I was running this stuff by Melissa this week, and then I was sharing with her the passage I'm about to read, and she gasped. Um, and she said, Matthew, 
are you sure you want to read that? And uh, now, admittedly, it's a pretty dark passage. <laughs> it's a pretty gloomy passage. I'll admit that. Um, you might have that same feeling in a minute. Um, but here's the thing. When, you know, when a wife, tells a, a wife of a preacher says, questions him about what his goal is on Sunday, you, you know what he does? He doubles down. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, actually, no, I, I, I get afraid, and I'm like, man, maybe I need to rethink this. But the more I looked into it, you know, the reality is yes, yes. Because although this is and does feel like a very dark and tragic story that really gets into the human condition that we're all dealing with, if you look beneath the story at what's really going on and what I think the author is trying to communicate, it's a love story. That's what it is. And moms, you need that love story. Women, you need that love story. And here's the thing. Also, today is Baptism Sunday. As you can see, it's one of my favorite days that we do. Now, um, and there's a connection. Let me explain that connection. You see, baptism is a physical expression. Um, it's not just for your identification with Jesus and his death and his new life, um, but it's this physical expression that there is an answer to one of life's most nagging questions, nagging feelings, the feelings of guilt, fear, and shame. What do you do with your guilt, your fear, your shame? What are you doing with it right now? Like currently in this season? Do you feel like you have any? I was listening to one of my favorite counselors uh, who wrote the book, Belonging. She says, one of the ways you know you're dealing with these issues underneath is just would it be a, a devastating reality to you to have everybody who's ever known you in the room at the same time? If, if it is, if you're like, no, I don't want that to happen, you're probably dealing with some levels of guilt, fear, and shame. It is energizing you more than you think. Do you feel like you have more than you can bear? Like it's weighing you down? What do you do with the feelings underneath? What do you do with the thought that you don't actually like who you are underneath? What are you doing with that? When I was a much younger man, it feels like a lifetime ago. I'm older probably than you think, or you're like, you might be looking at me like, no, we believe you, you're, you're older. Um, but when I was a much younger man, really just, really kind of just a new adult, um, I had a moment of total humiliation. Not long after, uh, I was kind of trying to figure out life on my own as a young adult. I was out with a couple friends for a concert. I was, after the concert, I was driving home. I was just, it was probably 10 minutes from my house. I was talking on my newly minted flip phone. Remember those, y'all? And uh, I look up in the rearview mirror, and there's red and blue flashing lights behind me. Everything in my world seemed normal up to that point, and then until the officer approached my window and asked me this question. Hey, man, have you had anything to drink? I said a couple. He said... Get out of the car. I said, 
well, let's talk about this. That doesn't work. It doesn't work, let me tell you. I'll spare you the details of everything that transpired. I'll just say that it was all going to work out in my head, at least, I thought, until I stuttered on the alphabet. It's true. I'm being totally honest with you. I stuttered on the very thing you learn even before kindergarten. Truth be told, I didn't end up with a DUI. After all, I'm being honest. <laughs> it's thundering outside for those of you at home. Uh, I did end up with a DUI after it was all said and done. But I was, I was put in the back of a cop car. I was taken and put in a jail cell until I could find a ride home. That was the most humiliating phone call I've ever made. And then I had to work through all of that. That seems like a lifetime ago, a long time ago, and I'm different now for sure. But here's the thing, to this day, truth is, to this day, there are many, many times when a cop is behind me and I get this little uneasy feeling, like, like a little heart, you know, elevation, you know. I've got an Apple Watch, I know, it's happening. And what I've learned is it's because somewhere deep inside me, I mean, even when I'm just like going to Kroger, you know? And what I've learned over time is it's because what's happening is I've got a little voice in my head. It's like a little, little feedback loop thing. It's deep in me. And when I see something like that, it triggers this voice, and this voice is like, you're the idiot that went to jail. If everybody knew that about you, they wouldn't like you. If everybody knew that about you, they wouldn't respect you. You haven't really actually changed. Or, you know, are you really any different? Do you like yourself at all? That's what's playing underneath, you know, the real... What if, what if, what if, you know, what if, what are your what ifs? My guess is underneath, even maybe unwittingly, we all carry or fight the feeling of guilt, shame and fear of being found out for who we really are. And my guess is, is you've got some nagging inner tor turmoil telling you somewhere deep inside you, if everybody knew you and what you've done or who you are underneath or what you say sometimes in secret, they would think of you as a fraud. You're a fraud, and you know it. At least that's what you're telling yourself. Maybe I'm off, and if you're like, I have no idea what he's talking about, brother, sister, I ain't preaching to you. When you don't know what to do with these feelings, it leads to one place. Listen to me, it only leads to one place when you don't know what to do with that feeling and that nagging inner turmoil. The one place that's left and the one place you will end up is in a deep secret sense of self-contempt. You will hate yourself. I think Time Magazine last year said, this is the season of blame. And as I've read some of the best counselors out there, what they say is, well, yes, because this is what happens when you're dealing with a society 
living in constant tragedy and deep self-hatred. That's what marks our society right now. But see, the gospel reminds us over and over and over again, there is a way out of those feelings. There is a way out of that self-hatred. That's where I need to go. Like when those feelings and those voices come up and remind me of my past and things like that, I have to remind myself of my baptism, literally. What is my baptism communicating to me? I read somewhere, if you want someone to know the truth, you just tell them. But if you want someone to love the truth, you have to tell them a story. That's how it works for us human beings. So I will read you a story, a very long one. (laughs) Take a deep breath. I'm going to read a lot of the Bible right now. All right? But it's a love story. That's what it really is. It's a story about love. It's a story about forgiveness. It's a story about guilt. And it's a story we need to know, and maybe you already know it, but you need to be reminded of. So here it is. It's Matthew, starting verse, chapter 26, starting in verse 57. We're in the last hours of Jesus' life, and we're going to read through chapter 27 into, all the way down to verse 26. Okay, so let me read it. You know, Jesus has just been taken, and his disciples have just fled and abandoned him. And here's what it says. Those... Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, finally, you know, two came forward and said, this man uh, said, I- I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Jesus did say something like that. He didn't say he was going to destroy it. He said it would be destroyed. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus just <laughs> remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you've said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now Peter, sitting outside in the the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, "Uh, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, "I, I don't know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them. You two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. 
and he went out and wept bitterly. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what's that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. But the chief priest taking the pieces of silver said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury because it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with him the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom the price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said again, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single char- to a single char- charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner for whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who was called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who was called Nazareth? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. Seek to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. It's heavy, I know. Matthew purposely puts all those little stories together. It's really actually brilliant. As tragic as it is, he's doing something utterly beautiful and brilliant. He puts them all together right after Jesus' trial. Did you catch that? That's why I wanted to read them all together. I know it was a lot. It's like each one of them is a little trial, a little mini trial of their own. You know what I mean? Like each character has their own inner turmoil trial. If you look carefully, there's actually four responses in that story I just read to guilt. There are four responses to what I call blood guilt. Did you catch it? Apart from Jesus, uh, you've got four characters. The chief priests, Peter, Judas, 
and Pilate. And actually, what, the, what Matthew's doing is he's showing you they're actually having their own little inner trial. So first, I'll just go through them pretty briefly. First, you've got Peter. Peter, the denier, right? Peter's already fled. I mean, really, he's already messed up. And here he is, half-heartedly following to see the end, to see the tragedy of his friend. It's like in some ways, he's still trying to find his way back to Jesus. It's kind of like many of us in our life. He's come to watch this tragic ending, and he's got turmoil brewing in him. And he doesn't quite know what to do, so he's at a distance. And you can't really miss the irony here that while he's out in the outside of the court, you know, he's in the courtyard, and Jesus is getting beat up and accused that he and mocked for not being able to prophesy, Jesus' prophecy is taking place right outside. And yet Jesus is just quiet about it. While Jesus stands firm in the face of authorities who can condemn him to death, Peter is undone by a servant girl. Oh, the contrast. He first pleads ignorance. Did you catch that? Then he heightens it or deepens it uh, with an oath. And then once people start recognizing his country accent, they're like, no, you're Galilean. And he starts cursing himself or Jesus. We don't really know exactly which. His mind is made up. That's what Matthew's trying to tell you. His mind is made up. His skin and reputation are more important than loyalty. You see, you've got to realize this is a little mixing up of words or half-truths would just be kind of a, oh, a heat in, the, a, in the heat of the moment, a lapse of judgment. But repetition means resolution. He is resolutely disassociating himself from Jesus. That's what's happening. Complete and total denial. Once he hears the rooster crow, he struck to the heart. This has happened just like Jesus said it was going to happen. Even with all the information, all the warnings ahead of time, it still wasn't enough for Peter. He still lacks courage. He's still a total failure. And his failure leads to humiliation. All the guilt and shame is just driving him to weep weep. You've got Judas. Judas, Judas, the betraying, setting up innocent blood, backstabbing Jesus. What happened in Judas? What do you think happened? I don't know why he wanted to kill Jesus. Maybe he didn't like the way Jesus was setting up his new project of kingdom work. And I don't know what made Jesus or Judas change his mind, but he changed his mind. He did. Matthew tells us he changed his mind. We don't know what jolted him or what triggered his deep sense of guilt, but he wants to wind the clock back. He really does, and he can't. Now, we're quick to say, too late, too little, too late, buddy. You made your bed, because that's how we treat each other. But before we jump there, before we jump there, see him as a human being. He is completely broken by what he's done, and what's he supposed to do? What's he supposed to do? Well, you say, well, he didn't run to tell Jesus. Maybe Jesus is locked up. Maybe he, gets no, he has no access to Jesus. You don't know what's going on there. What's he supposed to do? So he goes to the authorities in charge, and he says, look, I've screwed up, and maybe I can't save this innocent man, but I certainly can't carry this blood money. It's too heavy. It's too bloody. 
And he, off, he actually gives textbook repentance. Do you know that? He owns it. I have sinned. Innocent blood, he's in it. He, this man over here is innocent. I'm guilty. I own it. I feel terrible about it. And I want to pay it back. Isn't this textbook repentance? Calvin and Augustine would say it's absolutely textbook repentance. But he just doesn't, he can't imagine. He can't imagine a world where God would forgive. So in his despair, he throws the money down, throws it down in the temple, runs out, and he does exactly what the priests tell him to do. See to it yourself. So he does. He commits suicide. It's dark and it's sad, terribly sad, but when guilt has nowhere to go, self-contempt is the only option and self-hatred destroys you and it destroys everybody around you. That was true in first, the first century and it's true today. Then you have the chief priests and I know you're thinking, what terminal do they have? Well, look closer. These are the Bible authorities, the Bible teachers. You know, we like to uh, demonize them and uh, think that they have no inner turmoil, but I don't think that's accurate. It's interesting here, and we miss it, but remember, the chief priests are serious, very serious about the Bible, really serious about the Bible. And Old Testament law tells them that the temple can't accept money acquired through crime, and they know that, and they don't want to break a law. And so I'm not sure if they feel bad about this situation, but they don't want guilt on their hands either, do they? So what do they do? They take the money that Judas has thrown down and left, and they go by the potter's field, which is a burial ground for foreigners and strangers. Poor people. This is philanthropy. Strangers and foreigners don't have family around to work over the money and buy, provide a proper burial. So the priests are saying, well, we'll buy a burial ground for poor people within the community. It's charity. They're just being good civil servants with the money. One of the more subtle and frequently used approaches to inner turmoil and guilt is always charity. Churches could certainly and probably fill the coffers with more money if they'd heap on guilt and then talk money. Then you've got Pilate. Um, he's got this nagging sense of injustice, doesn't he? He's, he can't quite explain it. He doesn't even know really what's going on inside him. You know, bear in mind, Pilate, you may not know his story, but Pilate's from Rome, and he probably doesn't want to be stationed here in Jerusalem. He doesn't want to be here. Uh, he, he, I'm, he doesn't like Jews. He doesn't want to be anywhere near this land. Uh, and so I can't imagine that this was the dream job for him. He'd rather be in Rome, surrounded by the elites. This military-occupied outpost in Jerusalem is a necessary step in his career achievements, and he's probably thinking in his head, I'm going to do my time, I'll keep the peace, manage everything, uh, don't bring any unwanted attention from Caesar, and then I'll be out of here on my next post or my next promotion. And now he's got a situation on his hands. He's got a potential riot that he didn't ask for. Um, and at first, I think he's probably annoyed by it all. But something about this Jesus has him fascinated. Like he's just never met anyone like this, has he? 
Um, he's never seen anyone, I think, probably so calm and non-defensive. And on top of finding no guilt in Jesus, he's got this, his wife coming to him saying, please, listen, I got weird, sick feelings about this guy. Don't touch this thing. And so he's got all sorts of turmoil, doesn't he? Um, and so as much as he doesn't want to kowtow to the sham trial you know, that's being motivated by jealousy of Jews that he doesn't even like. So as much as he doesn't want to kowtow to them, the reality is he doesn't want too many problems on his hands, does he? So he doesn't want anything to hurt him professionally or personally. And so he tries this judicial political scheme to dodge the blood guilt on his conscience by offering up Barabbas because he's thinking, well, at least if I have a murderer crucified, I can sleep at night. But then what happens, you know, the, the, the crowd is, is taken over to this mob mentality. They're foaming at the mouth now, you know, the irony. They're foaming at the mouth for the blood of Jesus. Oh, you need it. And in the midst of that, Pilate does this very actually fascinating thing. It's very strange. He gets, goes out in front of this mob mentality and he takes a little pail of water and he washes his hands right in front of him. Right in front of him. His blood ain't on me. See that? The brilliance of the story. He's trying to, he's trying to say, I, 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 look, he's, what is he doing? I'll distract myself. I'll be apathetic. I don't need to absorb this. I can go back to my life in Rome. I don't want anything to do with this problem. I didn't start this problem. It's yours problem. It ain't on me. The blood ain't on me. Good luck with that, Pilate. Good luck with that. You guys with me still? That's all of them. Four characters. Four inner turmoils. So here's the question, right? Matthew's asking. Who's got blood on their hands? Matthew's point is everybody does. That's what he's saying. Which ones are culpable? Well, it's complicated, right? There are degrees to this situation. But Matthew's putting them all together like this to make a point. In the end, there was nobody innocent except Jesus. Everybody's guilty. And, the, and, the, and all the characters involved are either being crushed by their guilt, right? Or they're just trying to dodge it. But the blood of Jesus is crying out, and it's having an impact on everyone around him, whether they like it or not. And they have to deal with it. And they're struggling to deal with it in their own nuanced way. And maybe you know the rest of the New Testament story, so you know that this was a watershed moment for Peter, right? And, you, you know, and so we, we, we typically, I think, read this in the, the contrast of all these characters, and we're like, it's Peter. Peter's the hero. Really? Really? Because yes, for sure, this is a watershed moment for Peter. It changes his life. He becomes full of humility, passion, integrity, and love. But even in this moment, does he totally get it? Does he totally get it? Does he show perfect repentance? You know, commentators are very careful to point out that Peter goes out and weeps in secret. Lest his tears betray him. He still doesn't want anyone to know who he actually is, even in his grief. He's hiding still. 
This is why in the words of Frederick Bruner, the commentator, quote, we must be careful not to make the measure of God's forgiveness the measure of our remorse, for then we would never know the gospel's consolations. And that consolation is God loves you and forgives you. God loves you and he forgives you. He forgives you. He's saying, give me your guilt. Give me your shame. Give me your fear. Give me all of it. Isaiah 53, 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. For guilt. Matthew puts all these stories together just like this to show in the end everybody's guilty. And Jesus says, I know I want to take it. I want to take it. So look, I don't know what this story does to you. I don't know where you find yourself in the whole story that we read. I don't know what kind of nagging voices you've got. But I know this, friends. Apathy won't work. Like just distracting yourself with your career or kids or family or a hobby, it won't work. Looking to great accomplishments and charitable acts like the priests won't work. You'll still feel like a fraud underneath. Giving up on your life, punishing yourself, friend, it won't work. It won't work. And weeping like Peter, that's a great first step. Absolutely. But there is a grief that leads to ruin. And there is a grief that leads to renewal and restoration. Paul says that like this in 2 Corinthians 7, 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief just produces death. The difference is godly grief looks to Jesus and sees him silently. <laughs> he barely speaks, doesn't he? Silently taking the punishment because he wants to. Now, I don't know if any of this makes any sense as I close up here. I don't know how or if this is landing on you at all, but I know we're all little paradoxes. All of us, please, would we all be open to that reality that we're all these little paradoxes? In the words of Sharon Hirsch, quote, we are proud and we hide. We serve and we feel contempt for others and ourselves. We join and then we isolate. We want God and we want to be God. We bless and we wound. We are afraid and we dare greatly, we fall down, and we rise. And we hear that we are loved, and that we can come clean, and that we can be forgiven, and that we can have peace, and we hear it, and we hear it, and we hear it, and yet so often we still feel so much guilt and self-contempt. So my encouragement for you is this. There is a lot of power in naming the very thing that's weighing on you. Name it. Be specific and say, Jesus, take it. Take this, this very thing that if people saw it, they would hate me or not like me or not love me or not want me around. Name that thing and give it to him. And if you do that and you do give it to him in prayer, tell someone about it. You know, Peter you know, no one would have ever known about Peter's failure had he not actually shared it with his friends. But he did. He wanted his friends to know. So as we come to the cup and the bread, let us remember that together. This little wafer at the top represents 
Jesus' body broken for you, and the juice underneath represents his blood shed. May we all take time to examine, to think, to look at Jesus, to see what's happening in the story, see where we fit in, and be honest about that, and take part. If you're not ready for honesty in that, you're not ready for honesty with Jesus and your sin, then this little thing isn't for you. I'd rather you just keep coming and listening. Let us pray together. Father, we love you, and we thank you. And may we remember that you have come not to condemn, but actually to forgive, because you love us, and you've given us a way out. You don't eliminate all of our pain. You never made that promise, at least in this life. You've made a promise to love us and be with us even in the midst of our pain, even in the midst of our little voices, even in the midst of our turmoil. And so thank you that your Holy Spirit speak wherever it is needed this morning. We praise you and we thank you